A reading from the book of 1 John. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. The word of the Lord. Well, it's very fitting that Jonathan read our passage this morning. I'll share why it's fitting in just a few minutes. For those who are visiting, my name is Paul. I'm the senior pastor here. It's great to have you join us. Additionally, I'm seeing some faces we have not seen for a while, and I'll just encourage all of us, as we head into the fall, it's a great time to reset our, reset our priorities and rhythms, so it's a joy to welcome you back. Uh, we're going to dive into 1 John chapter 5, but before we do that, would you bow with me as I begin with a brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come Holy Spirit, come in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of today's message is Jesus Has Done It. And I'd like to begin by asking everyone this question. Have you ever been summoned to court? Shortly after moving to South Carolina, I was summoned to court here for jury duty. Now at the time, I was traveling around North America helping to launch new churches on behalf of the Anglican mission in the Americas. So the summons was quite the surprise and caught me off guard. Nonetheless, at least in my head, I wanted to be a good servant and citizen. So I changed my flight schedule and my work schedule and made plans to go. Now before I continue, I need to confess something. Here it is. I did not want to go. I didn't want to go to court, and I did not want to be selected as a juror. I could not imagine sitting in a courtroom for hours or days or even works, excuse me, weeks on end. My heart just was not into it. Uh, returning to the story, however, for those who are new to this whole jury selection process, here's how it works. First, citizens in a district or area are randomly selected to show up for jury duty as part of a jury pool. Next, the judge and attorneys involved in the case gather the potential jurors in the courtroom and then ask them questions related to the case. They might ask, Mike, might you know someone involved in the case? Buffy, might, 
you have special information about this case. Blake, might you hold certain positions or prejudices involving matters of the case? And from there, the judges and attorneys excuse certain jurors or potential jurors from the jury pool based on their findings. And they come back with this group that then sits in the jury box. And these are the servants and citizens, so to speak, who will listen to the case and then decide the verdict of the case. Are you with me? You got it? So knowing all this and knowing my heart was not in it, really in it, how did I approach jury duty? Well, I thought it was best to show up to the court showing who I really am or what I really am. I showed up looking like this. I showed up in a priest collar and suit. Now, if you look closely, you'll notice this is not a picture of me. This is a picture of Archbishop Foley Beach of the Anglican Church in North America. And if you look closely and you're not colorblind, you'll notice he's wearing a purple shirt, which signifies he's a bishop, whereas I was wearing a black shirt and a black suit and a white collar signifying I'm a priest. Still, you get the point. Emily, I showed up for jury duty as a priest. If they chose me, I thought they'd know exactly who they're getting. They'd know exactly what they're getting. And guess what? The response to my attire that day was nothing short of amazing. Listen, first the court ushered us into the courtroom and we were a ragtag bunch. I'm not going to lie. We all looked different, different ages. And it was really early. People were tired and hungry. And usually we don't all gather uh, early in the morning up in Monk's Corner, but there we were. Next, I remember waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, now, I was waiting uh, on the front row in the middle because that's where I chose to sit. So I was waiting there just, what's going to happen next, right? And finally, after some time, the judge and the attorneys came through a door near the front of the courtroom. And after glancing around the room, uh, their eyes landed on me and they froze. They legitimately froze in their tracks. I'm not sure what caused them to freeze, but it looked as if they'd seen a ghost and they finally made their way to their seats. But in this moment, I thought it was appropriate to give them a serious pastoral nod. <laughs> it was amazing. And here's the deal. Honestly, I don't remember much more from that morning except the judge sharing some facts about the case and then uh, one of the attorneys saying, Judge, can I speak with you in private? And so they left the way they came in. And next thing you know, a, a court official came back into the courtroom and said, the case has been resolved. You can now go home. You're free to leave. And it wasn't just me. It was everyone. Isn't that something? And I'd like to think that I helped produce that outcome with my attire that day. But I was never told such. Still, it makes for a great story. So why do I share this story? I share it because in our passage this morning, the apostle John brings us to court. Seriously, John goes all Ryan Oberly or Jonathan Huang on us in 1 John chapter 5, using all sorts of legal language and jargon and claims, and it all focuses on who? Jesus. So that's why I'm excited to dive into 1 John chapter 5. This leads us to our big idea of the morning. Security in life is a matter of believing 
in something or someone. And the Bible says nothing and no one compared to Jesus. Security in life is a matter of believing in something or someone. And the Bible says nothing and no one compared to Jesus. And we're going to unpack this uh, through our passage in two points. Point one, consider the audacious claims about Jesus. And point two, consider the audacious love of Jesus. So point one, consider the audacious claims about him. Let's dive into God's word. Our passage begins, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Then jumping down to verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So one fellowship, first things first. The claims about Jesus in the Bible and in this book of the Bible are audacious. They're absolutely audacious. As we've made our way through 1 John this summer, we've read passages that make our heart sing and passages that make our heart stop. We've been encouraged, challenged, warned, and affirmed. And such continues in our passage today. Both in this book and in his gospel, the gospel of John, he wants us to see, trust, and love Jesus as the only way of salvation. And he begins, as he begins, as we briefly, excuse me, as we begin our passage today, as we briefly touched on last week, it centers on this word victory. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And later he goes on, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, these are bold, dare I say, divisive claims. Are they not? You see, for John, victory and security in this life and the life to come are found in no one and nothing else except Jesus. Either John is the son of God who brings eternal life or the entire narrative about Jesus in the entire story of the Bible is a sham. John leaves no wiggle room here. Our good and our fate all hinge on Jesus, he tells us. So more on this in just a minute. But I'd like to share another story right now. Do we have any golfers in the room? Give me a nod. Yeah? One fellowship, he was born in Cyprus, California in 1975 and is tied for first in PGA Tour wins with 82 victories. Having spent more weeks at number one than any other professional golfer in history, he ranks second in total professional major golf championships with 15 victories, trailing only Jack Nicholas, who holds 18. He's already been inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. And as of June 2022, listen to this, he's made an estimated $1.7 billion, more than any other athlete Forbes has ever tracked. His name? Tiger Woods. I'll never forget in the mid-90s when Tiger was just coming on the scene and Nike signed him to be the face of their brand. The company, I believe it was in 1996, then launched a commercial called I Am Tiger Woods. Does anyone remember that commercial? It was so well done. 
It featured all these different kids from all these different socioeconomic and racial backgrounds learning to play golf, chasing their dreams, trying to make something of themselves, and then looking into the camera and saying, I am Tiger Woods. I am Tiger Woods. I am Tiger Woods. And in that moment, the longing of these kids practically jumped out of the screen. Looking back, I think Nike's message was clear. Anyone and any kid can rise and become a champion. Again, it was moving. And of course, the commercial ended with what? The Nike swoosh. One Fellowship, what is Nike's slogan? Just do it. And that's what the commercial was pitching. Go do it. Do it. Go for it. Conquer it. And of course, Nike wanted all the kids and all of us to wear their brand and use their gear in the process, right? Well, would you believe me if I told you that the word Nike is used in our passage today? I'm serious. It's actually used four different times. The actual Greek word looks like this. And from my research, it would have been pronounced in the Greek, Nike, not Nike. Someone needs to call up that uh, CEO guy, Phil. Nike, it's pretty cool, right? Translated into English, what does it mean? Well, depending on its usage, it means overcome or victory. Isn't that something? You see, Nike, the company, pulled its brand from this ancient word as there was an ancient goddess in Greek mythology called Nike, who was the goddess of victory. Now listen, friends, this is important. It's against this backdrop that John told his original readers, and the Bible tells us, no church, no brothers and sisters. The real victory in life is not found in human effort, human ascent, or some Greek goddess. No, the real victory is found in Jesus. It's a bold, audacious, life-altering claim. In other words, while Nike might tell us, Sally, just do it. Blake, just do it. Hayden, just do it. John and the other biblical witnesses would tell us, Jesus has done it. Melissa, Jesus has done it. In him lies the victory. Verse four, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, the victory has already been won. Jesus has done it, Erica. Have faith, believe. Therefore, if you truly want to overcome life's sins and struggles, disappointments and doubts, the one uh, answer is to trust not in yourself or even someone else, like Tiger, how did that work out? But to trust in Jesus. In Jesus, our passage says, we find the victory in the resulting security for which our hearts deep down so desperately long. It's quite profound. Point one, consider the audacious claims about Jesus. And point two, consider the audacious love of Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you actually read our local paper, but in the Post and Courier this last week, there was an article published about a century-old ring that was recently found on Edisto Beach. The article was written by Jennifer Barry Hawes, and it's quite captivating. Here's why. 
Apparently, a woman who has deep ties to Edisto and has walked its shores for over 50 years was walking recently in the morning early sunlight and saw something glistening in the sand. She bent down, picked it up, and to her surprise, it was a gentleman's flat gold wedding band which looked what, had what looked like three markings inside the band or three inscriptions, some new, some old. The first set of markings the lady discovered later through online research were written in Latin in block lettering and when translated read, quote, what virtue has joined together, death shall not separate. The second set of markings were written in cursive and read, quote, Herman H. Hahn, 1919. And the third set of markings were written in even smaller and loopier cursive and read, quote, H-A-S to A-R-W 2020. So with this information, the woman to, decided to become an amateur sleuth in an attempt to track down the ring's owner. And leveraging friends, professionals, and social media, the woman went to work online and over the phone. Now listen to this. After only six hours of sleuthing, six hours of sleuthing, using sites like Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Ancestry.com, and even Aiken's visitor's website, the owner of the ring was found. His name, Andrew Wade. Are you here, Andrew? A young man from Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, who married Ashley Smith in early 2020. Thus the inscription, H-A-S to A-R-W 2020. Now, according to the couple, sometime in the summer of 2020, after they'd been married, the couple was vacationing at Edisto, and Andrew lost the ring. And somehow uh, they could not find it, and it devastated them. A family heirloom, the ring had originally belonged to Andrew's great-great-grandfather, Herman Henry Hahn of Aiken, who had had it made for his own wedding in 1919. Therefore, you can only imagine how elated the couple was to have the ring found and returned to them. It's an amazing story. Here is a picture of that ring with its markings. Friends, before returning to our passage, let me ask, do you think this ring would have been identified and returned to its original owner without the markings? I don't think so. In fact, one could argue that the markings were critical in the search for the truth. Now let me move us from our hearts to our heads for a minute. Looking at our passage, using the word testify or testimony 10 times in our passage, John says in kind of a courtroom uh, language, there are three markings that are critical for us to discover the truth about Jesus. Listen again to our passage beginning in verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne himself concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Wow. Because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life 
And this is the life in his son. So one fellowship, the three markings here mentioned, water, blood, and spirit. And John says these markings tell us the truth about Jesus. So what is he referring to here? While there has been a lot of ink spilled on this specific passage, most theologians in our tradition believe John is referring to the water of Jesus' baptism, the blood Jesus shed on the cross, and the witness of the Holy Spirit to us, the believers, the church. Take away any of these three marks. Lawyers, can I get a nod? Take away any of this evidence. Something goes missing. But understand these markings and you'll discover the truth about Jesus, his audacious love for you and for me. So we're going to hit these briefly. First, the water. We read in the Gospel of John chapter 1, in the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is called the incarnation, and it is a foundational belief of all who believe in Jesus. Listen, compared to other faith traditions, Jesus isn't just some idea. He's not just some spirit. He's not just some philosophical system. No, Jesus was and is the son of God who came in the flesh to redeem you and me. That's what the Bible says. As a kid, Jesus would have cried. As a carpenter, he would have gotten splinters in his hands. And when it came time for him to enter into public ministry, he did what all believers do. He got baptized. Mark chapter one, just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You see, his ministry began by way of water as he came as a human in the flesh like you and me. And John wants us to see where it all began, how it all began. And this is his first marker. Jesus, like you and me, he was baptized, fully human. Now, what I especially love about this doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation, is this. This means Jesus can relate to me. This means Jesus can re relate to my family. And Andy, this means Jesus can relate to you, whatever you're going through, and he can relate to your family. Just thus, John says, note the water. Next, he says, note the blood. Friends, Jesus didn't just come to live, he came to die. In multiple, multiple times in our passage, there's a reference to the blood. Now, for our modern sensibilities, this might seem rather gory, right? If you've ever read the Old Testament, it's like, oh, that's, that's a little different. But for a Jew, Jewish audience of this day, this would have been significant and powerful language. Here's why. In the history of the people of Israel, when they screwed up and sinned, God had allowed them to offer sacrifices in their stead. Thus, when blood was spilled, a life of an animal was taken. But guess what? A life of a human was saved. Thus, blood equals life in the biblical tradition. Now, with that backdrop, listen to 1 John 2, 2. He himself, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Similarly, in the book of Ephesians, we read, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. In other words, Jesus' spilled blood is a demonstration. His spilled blood is a demonstration of God's extravagant grace. Put simply on the cross, Jesus took on our worst to give you his best. And he says, friends, fishers, don't miss this. The second marker is the blood. And last but not least, we're told of the Spirit. Do you remember what Jesus said of the Holy Spirit before he went to his crucifixion? Listen to how sweet these words are. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. How beautiful is that? We're not only saved in this life. Jesus says we'll be guided and comforted in this life by way of his spirit. And in the book of Acts, we see that all who profess Jesus as Savior and Lord without limitation are given this gift. Thus, for John, with these three markers, we come to understand who Jesus really is and what he came to do. Listen, he came in the flesh Here's the closing argument for John. He came in the flesh by way of water, and he can relate to you, Rowan. Whatever you're going through or will go through this coming school year, Jesus can relate to you. Also, marker two, he came in the flesh and he died for you. Jack, whatever you've done, his sacrifice, his perfect sacrifice is enough for you and always will be enough for you. Thus, note the blood. And last but not least, the spirit. Jesus not only gave his life for you, he sent his spirit to encourage and guide you. Thus, we're never without hope and we're never without help. And being a dad who just sent his oldest to Clemson for, this time, for the first time, this gives me great encouragement to know that the spirit of God is encouraging Caden right now, Colin right now, Rachel right now, Ella right now. He doesn't leave us alone. The Spirit goes with us. So point two, consider this audacious love of Jesus. Look at the evidence, he says. Now returning to this courtroom scene, after making the argument that Jesus, in Jesus we have the victory or the Nikkei, just tell people it's not Nike, it's Nikkei. And after making the argument that we can be assured of the audacious love of Jesus through three specific markers, John writes these words. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So one fellowship, friends, guests, do you know you have eternal life today? Are you certain? Are you secure? Are you confident? Are you humbled by what Jesus has done for you? John and the other biblical writers want you to live with certainty that you are secure in Jesus. John would say, believe, Jen. Frank, believe. Sutton, believe. Just do it? No, Jesus has done it. In the words of one theologian, Christians don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Thus, believe, walk, and live, and trust 
in this belief. Security in life is a matter of believing in something or someone. And the Bible says, nothing and no one compare to Jesus. Belief. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this clarity in this passage. It hits our hearts and it hits our heads. May we know the fullness of all Jesus came to do and offer for us. And may we know that we are secure in him. Help us to believe even when we don't believe in ourselves, even when we struggle to believe in those who are around us, even when we struggle to believe in the church. You loved us. You sent your son to die for us. And that is enough. Help us to hold on to this trust and belief. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.